John. John, John? Cody, damn it. <laughs> Are we supposed to have silence at the beginning? What is yeah, this? Yeah, yeah, and then Cody said cha 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 right as we started recording. Yeah, the receipts are right there. You can see it's those good. lines. Yeah, He's got good. that you Latin rhythm it. in him. Can't help it. I can't, I can't wait for the board. I could, I could try my hand at some false music while Jason does the intro. That would come out really well, I bet. Uh, yeah, if, if you want to do that, okay. So wait, 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 wait. I'll, He's doing I'll... it. Wait, stop. Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find them on Twitter at Trilon Cinema. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus, and my name is Jason Daphnis. I'm Cody. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Cody underscore BH. Uh, look for Cody's upcoming debut album on SoundCloud. Uh, this is Harry. You can find me on Twitter at Shitaki Harry. I'm Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. And today is the day that we talk about the film After Hours, 1985 film by Martin Scorsese. And Aaron is going to uh, take longer than the film probably lasts to tell us what the film is about. I have like, I swear to God, two sentences. Can, can, it, be a, can it be a bit? Can it, can it be a bit that I just like make fun of you for that? No, that's Or fine. do you want me to stop that? No, that's good. Okay. I'm, I'm good with a bit. If you want to do right, it. I mean, proceed. it's where we kind of do a bit with the, the, the film intro anyway. So that, that is true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're talking about after hours, 1985 Martin Scorsese film, uh, starring Griffin Dunn as Paul Hackett, who is a white collar worker who pursues a romantic relationship with a woman that he met in a diner. Um, when the woman, uh, named Marcy played by Rosanna Arquette asks him to come over to her apartment later in the night. He has an unusual adventure as things turn from bad to worse as he just attempts to get home. That's like 15 seconds. That was like, that was, that, that was pretty great. Perfect. I know that setup. I'm consistently surprised when you actually hit the mark on those. Uh, thank you for My that. Wonderful setup. Uh, I don't even know what I was supposed to say. Uh, they're disappointed in me, I guess is what the, the joke would be. Oh, I'm sure. Gosh. I'm sure that's not true. A fine summary, Aaron. Thank if you I, so much. If I were your well dad, done. I would be proud of that summary. Thank you. Do, does anybody's parents listen to this podcast? No, uh, God, my, no, I've no. never told them. My no, dad I mean, they know I do it, these but... episodes. Shout out to my dad if you're listening. Do you know what episode? Like a, like a year ago to? when I started, uh, my mom said she was going to, but she didn't know how. Uh, and then I taught her how, and she just has been, uh, she's maintained radio silence since that point. Since I've taken the easy excuse for her. <laughs> she um, no longer has an excuse for not listening, so she, she just, just doesn't say really anything. Doesn't, right. uh, there, which there is, is ideal like a, for me. There's like an interesting thing when you like show one of your parents like how easy it is to do something technologically when like the fear comes over their face where it's like, oh shit, I I, I guess I could check in on my kid on my like there is a podcast app. I wish it was not this easy. I'm just going to plead ignorance uh for the future. In regard to I, uh, it's which is hard like, to learn how podcasts, which work. is like really how how your relationship with your your creative endeavors and your parents kind of, um, at least in my mind, how it should be. Ideally, it's like I don't I don't need or want my parents to listen to this, to read anything that I've ever written, or engage with any of my content on any level. Right? It's just well, because like it relies like a, a certain degree of care that I don't think I need from my mom you know she instilled some of my love of older films so i guess it's relevant but it's not like it's not like they could provide useful feedback except just like that was great good job so i don't know i don't know that i want to make them perform like that i am not a creative person but there whenever i'm watching a particularly let's say risque movie or reading a book it's like i what if you're 
parents were just like reading this movie about you fucking. Yeah, I mean, I, I say I, I, I say would... fuck on this podcast a lot, right? It's like that's weird. I don't want I don't it's... want my mommy hearing that. <laughs> yeah, but even like this movie is like not autobiographic, but this movie is like very personal project for Martin Scorsese. This is about this dude just trying to get laid for like an hour and a half. Like, I wouldn't want my parents to fucking watch that. Like, that sounds terrible. Your parents grew up in the sixties and seventies, man. They have probably seen. Yes, more. but I do not want to think about it. Uh, that is not an aspect of my parents that I want to consider in any way. Uh, yeah, I don't know. But, uh, I'm, I'm happy that I am not creative in any manner, I guess. So is the rest of the world. Uh, thank you so much for introing, uh, today's movie, uh, Aaron, because I really enjoyed watching it. And I think that was a great way to frame it. This movie is very loosey goosey and very weirdly tight at the same time. It is a cool, what, like 87, 97 minutes, something like that. And I read that it was actually chopped down by about 45 minutes from the original cut. Um, the history there, as you alluded to, it was a little bit of a, uh, a side project, something to get Martin Scorsese's wheels going after the original version of The Last Temptation of Christ was dropped due to studio pressure um, and, of course, public outcry about how it said that Jesus fucked. So I've never seen that film. So um, but uh, I just like I really like reveling in this movie's like weird dream logic type thing. And I think that comes with the territory of it being one of those, like it joining the just trying to get home canon of like the warriors uh, and something like, I mean, I kept thinking of Mad Max Fury Road as I usually do. Um, Harry, you've got your hand up. So I assume you've got a point to make, but I want you to talk a little bit about as well about the first time you saw this movie, because I believe it was directly at the trial on, right? That was the point I was going to make. Thank you for that great transition. Um, yeah, the first time I saw this movie, it was the fifth and final movie in the um, five movie set of the Trilon Up All Night back in um, 2019. I think it was in September before uh, the shit hit the fan and we could all leave our homes. Um, they played five movies, the theme of which were uh, among all of them were that they took place over the course of a single day and or night, usually night. Um, this was a really perfect final movie in that um sequence because this movie is like a a fucking like complete nightmare departure into like this this otherworldly underworld of new york um and it it makes you feel like your brain's being turned inside out much like the main characters is um and so to to experience that effect after having run sort of a movie marathon um was a lot of fun um the other point I was going to make was just that uh, this movie has a an interesting reputation, uh, particularly if you read like Roger Ebert's um, review of it, which I like a lot, and uh, some of the other sort of critical consensus around it, that um, it was sort of a, a break for Martin Scorsese, almost, like Jason, you alluded to, where like he had just been making um, Last Temptation of Christ and struggling with it, and he himself had called this movie an exercise in pure style. Um, and I think that he received the script and liked it a lot. Um, and I believe that the script writers were not um, like very experienced at the time. I could, that could be wrong. Um, but well, the I, first I believe of, they were independent, right? Yeah. yeah. The, the, the first the bit of it is, was a, in, he was a, a script writer in grad school. Uh, yeah. Was Joseph, Joseph Minion, who has not done a ton of stuff other than writing this film. Uh, but I, you know, I guess writing a film for Martin Scorsese is a pretty big one. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and he received an A plus on the project, which I always thought was a fun detail. Wait, the writer of this film got an A plus in college for it. Yeah. Yeah. 
that's great. university. Yeah. yeah, that uh, makes me feel good. Um, yeah. It does. It does show to both of your points. It shows like the value uh, and place of this movie as a style piece. Um, obviously, the like the oddities and the sort of uh, I don't know stylistic flair of it do lend it a lot of its interesting aspects because, like like I said, ultimately it comes down to a story of a guy trying to get home at, at, during a night gone bad. Sort, but it's, it takes on sort of like an odyssey. Uh, feel after the like first half hour or so where he starts to meet increasingly like strange characters of the night and uh, and is just caught up in coincidence after coincidence and it like there was one review i read i forget who wrote it about how it starts to feel like there's a it might have even been ebert's review how there's sort of like a a dark underbelly like another like an underworld of of uh of this section of is it manhattan he's in uh where it's like get soho so we get so we start to get um pieces and peaks of that world through the characters that inhabit it. Uh, and those I don't think would have been elements of the story that was written before. Uh, certainly not like their flair and their visual presentation and their direction and acting. Uh, so I, I think that the directing does a lot of work in making this a very entertaining and engaging film. Uh, but you know, that I think is sort of in, in turn teed up by the fact that it is just a very simple premise to start with. Right. Um, did anybody else, I know I keep tossing back with that of like, did anybody else think that way? Or did anybody else feel that? Is that something that came through to y'all? I mean, it's a, there's an interesting energy specifically to this movie. I mean, not, not just because it's, uh, you know, it does feel like in regard to Scorsese's filmography, you know, he, he took a, he was about to shoot last temptation of Christ. They put the hold on it. He got this out really quickly. Um, and then, color of money and then last temptation of Christ. Um, this movie feels really weird. I think just from a very cursory, uh, skim on Wikipedia, I think this is Scorsese's shortest film. Uh, Scorsese is someone who is, uh, generally known for directing longer films, you know, maybe some epics, some not right. But, you know, if you think of all of his more famous films, like, uh, uh, if you think of like the departed or Goodfellas or casino, those are all movies that are two to three hours. Even, you know, his last film, the Irishman was, was about three and a half. Um, he is known for when I think of him and then specifically his relationship with Thelma Schoonmaker, um, you know, there's some very good editing and concise writing, but it is always the impressive part to me is always that they're very long films that justify their length and justify their kind of sprawling nature. This film is very short and concise and to the point in a way that feels really impressive and kind of like nothing else in his filmography. In an interesting way in that, like it also, it does the, the Scorsese thing that you just illustrated where it's um, Scorsese's movies often uh, are very long, but don't necessarily feel that long or the, the length sort of sneaks up on you. I think I feel that way about this movie as well, but this movie is also 90 minutes such that I watching this movie to me feels like watching an episode of television or something. I, it's like the, the most smooth ride for me. Um, especially this last time I watched it, maybe because I knew the movie. And so I wasn't quite as anxious or tense about it in, um, suspense but it, it felt like it was 60 minutes long to me easy it was like it's like the the um the smoothest uh watch i think that's a great 
like talking about how this movie would be to rewatch. I of course have only seen it once and it wasn't at the trilon. Unfortunately, I think was this, are we, are we talking about this because it was one of the trilons recommendations or just because it was like a hanging up. Chad? No, it's coming up again. Yeah. Oh, it's going to be, it's going to be at the trilon. Great. Yeah. Well, uh, buy tickets for that when they're available. Um, because I imagine that there must be other parts of the film that stick out in ways that they didn't the first time, right? Things that you're not thinking, like you're not as tense this time. Maybe some of the comedy came through better, or maybe it didn't hit the right, the same way. What was, uh, what was different this time, uh, Harry in your second watch? Sure. Yeah. I think a lot of those things came through. Um, but first I, w- I wanted to, I was interested in Cody's takeaway from it. I think this was your first time seeing it, right, Cody. And so maybe you had a different experience watching it recently than yeah. I did. Uh, yeah. So I, I finished watching this, uh, a couple hours ago. I think I was the last one of us to have, uh, watched it. Y'all did a, uh, a much more optimal job of watching this, um, earlier in the week, uh, peeling back the curtain, um, you know, more time to die digest with the art we got we got to get your fresh like your fresh noties though we got to get yeah, those I'm pretty excited off that, sure. yeah uh tamper your expectations um but i i guess i was you know we were talking about all the different ways in which we contextualize uh scorsese's after hours and i've found myself searching for that like well into the movie um before recording i a few of you brought up you know uh, uh, finding out for yourselves and and like Ebert suggesting that like there's not you know how much of a point is there to this movie and like its themes and its journeys um, and like one contextualization that helped for me was uh, framing it as you know this is Paul's evening we're seeing uh, nearly everything every perspective every shot through him Um and like this movie is an exploration of the world and uh, or this world, particularly um, his world uh, of his evening and its people uh, kind of crashing in against him as a, you know, as he's being a maybe more passive uh, and passionless participant in that world. And once that kind of clicked uh, a little bit better, I found myself uh, feeling that that smoothness that you guys uh, alluded to. And I think if I, you know, I'll probably revisit this again someday, uh, whether it's at the trial on or, or somewhere else. Um, but I imagine some things will feel more comfortable having settled on that. And, you know, whatever we end up discussing here as well. Uh, oh, and, and real quick, sorry if uh, I always raise my hand as soon as I think of something to say because I'm desperately afraid that I'll lose what few thoughts are rattling around inside my um, quarantine-addled mind if I don't do that. But don't take that as an indication that you should stop talking because that's just something I have to this, do. This isn't the uh, the Academy's wrap it up music, right? Exactly. Like I'm not trying. I'm not trying to tell you to shut up or that I really want to say something. So sorry if it comes off that way. Um, no, you're good. But uh, I really like how you you pointed out that um, this is such a POV movie um, to the point where, like, I think something that really st- stuck with me the second time around um, that that made a lot of sense to me the first time around as well, Jason, um, to answer your question, was that, like, the ways in which the circle not quite completing-esque um, conspiracy theories unfold in this, um, th- like, really... Uh, sung for me this time around like i could see the the planting of the seeds in uh act one that would pay off in acts two and three even better than i could the first time um there are a lot of different things that happen in this movie that lead you and sort of um uh 
the main character, uh, Paul, to suspect uh, without ever really putting your finger on how or why that not only is there more than meets the eye to this world, but that in fact he has entered this sort of like very pynchon esque solipsistic uh, conspiracy against him specifically where like, like everyone in the world knows something he doesn't and have sinister intentions for him specifically, right? At least in particular, the women of this story, which is kind of where, where some of the psychosexual themes come from, but it really feels like there is a conspiracy to entangle him in this world and a couple of different ways that that manifests and particularly the way your relationship with that, uh, that feeling is meant to mirror Paul's so that you are very much the POV character along with him and inhabiting his sort of emotional state along with him at all points in this movie um, makes a lot of sense. And it creates this, really strictly measured controlled movie in my mind despite how things go so crazy that maybe contributes to how meticulously uh paced it feels yeah i was uh gonna ask you harry what sort of moments and scenes that like the those planting of the seeds you know which ones stood out to you but i i think you sort of uh you you address you ended up addressing those um and i i do agree with that um the the meeting of of marcy and how she kind of presents in a number of ways like a disruption to paul's like tedious day by day rhythms um i like the first scene in the in the taxi for me um like was this kind of uh, like step up as far as like stepping into something of, you know, something of surreal uh, vibes uh, and intentions and like all the suggestions in the, the first act and, and more so throughout uh, the, like the rest of the movie as well, but like su- suggestions of, you know, we were lingering on uh, like fragments of a sentence for a little bit too long um, or like, certain uh like smash zooms uh like uh, again notably with like the meeting of Roseanne Arquette's character um in a way that like when you're asleep or 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 not asleep but like craving sleep and are teetering on uh, like staying conscious and and falling asleep how certain things come across it it definitely and I guess connecting this to what you what you were talking about Harry it definitely felt like there was some conspiracy and it felt to me like this this state the space that we're entering is a space in which everybody else is either asleep themselves or like aware of of that dream or or maybe they're just more hardened and like are used to this this dreamlike reality in a way that Paul is not and therefore they kind of resent him in that he is such a conscious like visitor or or tourist if that makes sense yeah, I think the the comparison that Harry made to, to Pynchon is is probably a good one. Um, uh, specifically, uh, uh, crying of Lot Forty Nine. I think that's like a right. The the this this movie would have came out. There was like a, a string of like films and books where like the the kind of uh, the core conflict was a character who kind of fit very solidly into like the 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 white collar working class was like clashing up against uh let's say more bohemian uh aspects of society right um i think that coen brothers did it with like hail caesar a little bit um the big lebowski they kind of 
did that too, although Lebowski is not uh, kind of like a, a white collar person per se. Um, but there is that here too, I think, right? Where like the the a lot of the interesting uh, elements at the beginning of this film is Paul Hackett meeting characters that he is so unfamiliar with um, and it, they are so different from him and that is so like apparent just at, at kind of um, first glance, right? And and there's the impression that uh, it's kind of like a, a ballad of a thin man moment, right? Where there's a character who's viewing art and expression that is like a critique of himself, right? Like the, the, the statue with the newspaper and the money kind of making up the, the skin of this uh, person in like this perpetual anguish, right? Like that's very clearly a criticism of, you know, 20th century uh, capitalism and, and uh, economics. Uh, he is kind of, you feel like unable to really understand how that's kind of taking an aim at him. Right. And then at the end of the movie that obviously uh, thematically starts to make more sense. Um, But this, this movie does this perfect thing where it's, it's portraying a guy wandering through this society that he doesn't understand and just constantly just not getting it, whatever it is. Right. He's just always kind of coming off as kind of a dumbass in every single situation. Well, with the exception that that his misunderstanding or, or his uh, um, dumbassery is also ours, right? Like he is supposed to be the character that we relate to, I think, in this movie. He's definitely the straight man. The movie does this amazing thing where it repeatedly introduces you to new situations where you think Paul has finally found a quote-unquote normal person who is not an inhabitant of this sort of nightmare bizarro world. And then all of a sudden the scales drop from his eyes when they say something completely like out of left field. Um, usually after he accompanies them back to their apartment, there's usually some like trap symbolism that comes along with this, but it's so good how like the, he'll, he'll meet these women or, or men who uh, appear normal. And then the minute that he goes with them or something, he becomes entangled in this new sort of ridiculous nightmare scenario. Uh, and all of these sort of compound and nest and then sort of interconnect with one another until by the end of the movie, he is wanted for this crime of breaking into people's houses. And he has the entire neighborhood of Soho residents chasing him through the streets. Right. So like it yeah. compounds over time. Go ahead. Aaron. Can, I, can I ask Harry specifically? I mean, just cause you bring it up. I, I, I am kind of torn on my ultimate evaluation of this movie because on one hand, I think that we are supposed to see, the main character is kind of a straight man. And I do think that specifically if you're into the making of this film, I think that Scorsese very clearly saw a lot of himself in Paul Hackett, uh, specifically in a lot of the, I don't know, Kafka-esque moments where Paul is trying to get into a club and he's being refused constantly. Uh, Scorsese um, compared that to his experience making The Last Temptation of Christ. I think we are supposed to see ourselves in Paul at the same time. Um, I think maybe even unintentionally, probably unintentionally, Paul is very clearly kind of an asshole. And a lot of the bad things that happen, despite what a lot of people on like Letterboxd and a lot of reviews said, you know, where I just don't understand what's happening. It's like this nightmare for Paul. I think Paul is responsible for a lot of the bad things that happened to him. And the movie is very critical of him as a person. So I'm kind of torn between seeing seeing him as this person thrust into this bad situation and also wanting to say that this movie is a critique of Paul and people like Paul. It feels like that, that latter 
reading is like very unintentional, but also to me, like clearly the correct reading of this film. It's like, it's, it's strange. Right. And like, I think that I'm glad we're getting into this because this was sort of my big takeaway that I maybe wanted to unpack because I don't fully understand it myself. I think it's kind of the Scorsese touch, right? Like, I think that this is, this is weirdly, and, and I don't want to, um, incriminate the author too much, right? Because that doesn't really matter. But like, it feels like this is a sort of psychosexual interrogation of one's own, like, interest in sexuality and shame around sexuality. Um, especially the way that that specifically Soho is used as this sort of, it's like a almost a funny satire of how people like Paul view spaces like Soho. Right. Where, where like you had said, like the the class exchange um, and culture exchange happening in this movie is so apparent where like uh, Kiki and Marcy, they they don't just represent objects of sexual desire. They also represent objects of like identity expansion or reclamation um, or at least divorce from day to day. And Paul enters this relationship with Marcy, not just sort of looking to get laid, but also looking for an escape from his day to day. Um, And he really wants it to be sort of a frictionless escape. And I think that this movie is sort of an extended critique of that desire. If I can cut in real quick, do you view that? Because I think I had a different take. I think, especially given what happens at the beginning of this film, I think Paul loves his day to day. I think interesting the, the the juxtaposition is between Paul and the other character that he's training to do yeah. this kind of very pointless data entry job, right? Where he's just like, just, you know, putting in like PowerShell command line prompts in order to, to fill out spreadsheets. Paul seems to love this shit. The other character says like, Hey, I want to look, I'm doing this just for the money. What I really want to do. I want to make this literary journal people who can't get published in other literary journals, they're going to get published here. This is going to give them the big break. And as he's talking about this, it's like the audio is fading out and Paul is just yeah. like looking around at his office. And there's like a sense where like Paul is like the ultimate sicko. Cause he's like looking around like his, his, you know, uh, $55,000 a year job and just going like, yeah, I just fucking love data entry, dude. Like I fucking live for this shit. Um, which is like, it's like, he is the real pervert by the end of the movie, you know? Interesting. I didn't, I didn't necessarily get that. Go ahead, Jason. Oh, I'm, I think I'm classically landing between you two. I think that he is not satisfied, not actualized as a being, but just so whipped into being a cog in a corporate machine that it is his haven. It's his, like this movie for me, like the, if there was an overarching message, which we discussed whether or not there is like that to this film, or if it's just like, a series of moment to moment uh, critiques, but he's like, he's not so much beset by this, by the, by the temptations. Fuck you, Siri. Okay. So Siri just thought that I was our new guest looking for play a series of moment to moment diacritics, but I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. Uh, I mean, but tell me which button this thing. She couldn't find any B B U T T. She could not find any Jesus Christ. I, I apologize for that. Uh, that uh, aside the like it's it's an odyssey in the purest sense only he's not so much tempted by the many wonders of the worlds that he's like he's never nobody ever has to tie him to the mast um as he is beset by this world that he'd rather ignore we were talking or i talked a little bit about like the underworld and harry was talking about the class differences uh portrayed in the movie um kiki is an artist 
uh, I forget um, uh, the main, uh, like the lead lady's profession, the the one who ultimately trigger warning uh, commits suicide. Um, Julia is a waitress. Gail is an ice cream truck driver. Uh, there's clearly like a class disparity here. Um, and that is like, it, it tortures him. Right. And returning to work at the end of the movie, such as he does where like, it's that full circle. He's dropped off outside of his building and just walks in and continues work again. And the camera goes crazy on a dolly returning to work at the end of the movie is a return to normalcy for him, a haven for like who he is and who he, uh, identifies as and how he sees himself. So while I agree, Harry, that like, he's not portrayed as like super satisfied or happy with his with his position with his lot in life i also don't know uh, aaron that it's made explicit that like he he'd hate that he loves this you know i actually um, i like that reading though because i think that i think that we can even read that first interaction he has with the the guy he's training in the lens that we read the rest of the movie which is that that paul is a tourist right like in the in the exactly. most yeah. profound sense of the word where like whether or not he's actually satisfied in his world of uh sort of day-to-day uh doldrums tedium without having to really like pay attention or get to the heart of anything doesn't really matter because what he hates and what he's afraid of is entanglement itself right like he he is interested in marcy not only because she represents this break from the day to day, but also because she feels frictionless, right? It, it feels like something that is so divorced from his reality that it's something that he can just engage with uh, and consume and then discard. Yeah, I, mean, I don't, I don't want to like a one night stand, right? I, right. I, that seems implied. I don't know. It's like, it's not necessarily, I don't know what his intentions with Marcy were long-term, but the minute she starts to be quote unquote weird, right? The minute she starts to become sort of a manic pixie nightmare, girl that's when he completely shuts down like you can uh you can see him deflate and then he immediately starts thinking about getting out of there i would characterize his relationship with everyone in the movie that way um even to the to the point where it feels like a like a deep critique right to to speak to aaron's point because like even after marcy kills herself he is more interested in how he can extract himself from that situation than he is in his culpability in the suicide of this woman. Right. There's, there, there's that like really key. It's darkly funny, but, but I think really good where he's trying to get out of the apartment, trying to get back home and realizing that he doesn't want to be part of this scenario anymore. And he starts taping up signs around the apartment for the police. That, that dead, girl. dead yeah. person this way. He just like it. I think that, that the way that he dis- misunderstands is also the, it, um, it runs parallel with his complete lack of taking responsibility for anything that's happening to him, which is funny because the the reason why it doesn't feel like a critique necessarily is that we can be so sympathetic to that because it really feels like these things are happening beyond his control. I mean, there, there's one uh, direct address where he says like, I just wanted to go out for a night, maybe meet a nice girl. Do I have to die for that? And it's like, Honestly, like I, you, you gotta be sympathetic to that, right? It's like, man, I really like, he probably didn't deserve this shit, but like, (laughs) there's a sense in which the movie maybe thinks that he did, or at least is, is poking fun at what that desire for, uh, these sort of like departures from the norm with no strings attached is and how our wanting to escape from things with no strings attached or entanglements is something to be interrogated. Uh, sorry for talking so long, Cody. It's all you. Uh, no, that's fine because that was, I mean, that was essentially my take too, in that like the, you know, we're following Paul who's 
I didn't read as, you know, in enamored with his, his occupation, but he, he like he's content enough with it and he feels comfortable enough with the, the freedom it offers in that he can, you know, spend a night and, you know, explore briefly outside of his, his boundaries, you know, one night stand, et cetera, not necessarily get too involved. And it, it was, got to be very pointed, uh, eventually. And and that's why I, I think kind of, like I said earlier, eventually the, the friction that does come between the world he's inhabiting and what Paul hopes to get out of, you know, his, his time, uh, you know, what he hopes to get out of this evening, why I felt that friction was earned because, uh, any, you know, largely his interactions with women, anytime they offer up something, uh, you know, three dimensional or more, you know, any, anytime they offer up, uh, you know, an emotion or, you know, an alternative conversation point, he, he's immediately looking for an escape route and the walls of, you know, this part of Soho that he's in are notably closing in on him as more and more people turn against his presence there. And so the flip the movie does from like comfortable freedom despite the tedium uh, juxtaposed with, you know, this labyrinth that he's trying to escape and can't find an an exit from uh, was something that eventually worked for me. And I guess I'm, I think I'm probably starting to warm up to. I, yeah, I I think that that stuff specifically the, I don't know, warriors esque turn that this movie takes and like the third act is like very interesting. Um, I, I don't mean this as like a, a criticism of the movie, but I do think that if you consider Scorsese's own relationship to this film, um, I think it, it does get very interesting in a kind of way, right? Like, uh, Scorsese had called this his most personal film. I think a lot of the relationship that he had to this movie was specifically just his own kind of experiences working in Hollywood, Um, So I think a lot of the, you know, what Harry called like the psychosexual elements of this film, it's like, it's kind of hard to read too much of that into uh, Scorsese as a person and kind of a little unfair too. But I do think that the... uh, You still want to though, right? I mean, I I still do. And that I think that this this movie is like uh, just one in a long line of of films in which um, this is going to come off harsh. Like I like Martin Scorsese. He seems like a, like a genuinely good guy with a lot of the the work that he does. And even if you view him in interviews, I guess I don't know him in person, but he seems like a very charming, nice guy. I like him. I like his films. Um, but there is like a tendency of specifically male directors making like not semi autobiographical, but like somewhat personal films and kind of coming off like a total shit. Right. Like I'm thinking of like a racer head with like David Lynch, where like you see that movie and you're like, imagine a fucking David Lynch's kids see this movie where like the ultimate dream of the the male main character is to fucking kill his kid who's like crying too much. Right. There's like it's not that extreme, but it's like it's getting there to the point where you're like, uh, I guess I don't know how much of this to read into the author as a person. Uh, maybe that's unfair, but I know. But I mean, that's a cliche about male auteurs, right? Is that they're completely self-involved, self-obsessed and sexually self-obsessed. It's specifically because it's correct, right? Because it's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally true. Um, and I, I agree with you. Like this really feels like an extended sort of critique of a very particular aspect of, uh, male sexuality, like contemporary male sexuality and like specifically Scorsese or like young ish successful, uh, people's, 
sort of like relationship with the world around them. Um, I'm thinking now a lot about uh, after Cody, you said something about this specifically Paul's relationship with art is really funny in this movie where he's reading Tropic of Cancer. That's what gets Marcy to approach him in the first place. He claims to have read it more than once. He doesn't, he like clearly doesn't recognize Marcy when, uh, when she quotes a, a very famous passage from it. So the extent to which he's actually read it or maybe read it more than once is uh, suspect in my mind. He might be doing a sort of great Gatsby thing. Um, and then also there's like, there's how flippant he is about the statue itself. He compares it to the scream. He says, Oh yeah, it's really great. I like that a lot. Anyway, can I get my paperweight? Right? Like he's there ostensibly to purchase paperweights, which he said is, is really just a cover to see Marcy itself. Right. Um, and so that, that sort of brusque, um, disinterest in art, it, it parallels his disinterest in letting anything touch his interiority at all, right? Which is, which is all even prefigured by that first uh, conversation he has with that guy who's like really like, uh, not really appropriately in the workplace, right? But like really making this, this impassioned um, statement about his intentions at this job to uh, Paul about like how he's going to change things, man. He's going to put together this literary um, magazine. And Paul is just like immediately, if not contemptuous, then totally dismissive of it. Uh, and that sort of characterizes his relationship with, with all art or, or really with all people who are trying to create sort of like lasting uh, relationships with him or, or let them, let him see their sort of like complicated interior worlds. This is a, this is a story about a guy who's running away from complicated interiority as quickly as he can to uh, seek refuge in the day-to-day tedium again. Right. (laughs) Literally that. Yeah. And that's what I was poking at earlier with, with like, it's just about how yuppies are whipped into, you know, being, corporate slaves essentially if, uh, if, if there's something to be gleaned there i want to go back to uh your point about art which i think i think that there is a lot to say there i don't know how much we'll have time for we're already approaching 40 but um like what the moment that he meets uh the first that he first meets obviously the um the whole like getting his paperweight is pretense right to uh have a one-night stand or or you know at least sexual intentions with marcy and when he arrives at the apartment and Marcy isn't available, or she's not there yet. Uh, and Kiki is working on her paper mache sculpture. And he first, he mislabels it. He says, it's like, it's like that painting, the shriek. Right. And of course it's the scream. And that like the fact that that painting is the one that he chose to compare it to. And then completely, like you said, dismisses it. He's completely disaffected by it. Um, is just such a funny point to me that, like the scream has become interpreted as like famously interpreted as like uh, it's representative of, you know, the uh, collective anxieties of the modern man. Right. And Paul just does not see himself and he refuses to engage with it at that level. He's just like, yeah, visually it reminds me of that. That's a man screaming. So it looks like the other painting I know of the man screaming. Uh, and that like, that really informed to me, that's one of like the keystone moments from my perception of Paul as a character. Um, I, and then later, like, as a final humiliation, he is forced to literally be encased in it and uh, in a very similar form of that painting. And, you know, uh, and, and he has to become it and, and remain completely silent inside of it until finally he is again, released by uh, the, by um, the, the uh, freedom of work 
right? He is, he bursts out of the thing after being dropped from the back of Cheech and Chong's van and heads straight back into work. It's, you know, all very fun and full circle, but it really like that moment was a really big character moment for me. Yeah. And, uh, well, first of all, speaking of sort of like uh, psychosexual uh, torturing and interrogation, it's it's worth noting that Scorsese actually wanted Paul to die in his original script and went so far as to write is to create a cut of that and showed it to his father. And his father <laughs> said, no, you actually have to let Paul live like it, wow. the movie doesn't work. You have to let Paul live, which is hilarious. But, so it's like <laughs> I think Scorsese would want to go further than we're even going with our interrogation of, of who Paul is. Um I really like that that uh, exchange you had with Kiki. That also leads to the sort of um, maybe the most blatantly symbolic character arc uh, motif of the movie later on uh, in the first act, which is Marcy's supposed burns um, and the sort of burning as symbolism that the movie continually leverages, where Paul has this story uh, as he's massaging Kiki's um, bare back that he was uh he had his tonsils out and they had to take him to a burn ward for some reason that i don't remember um for him to it recover was, uh, the normal area that he would have stayed in was full and the only place right. had it was in the burn ward yeah so they they made him wear this blindfold and since he was a little kid they told him like if you don't if you take this blindfold off you'll have to do the whole um operation over again which he says even as a kid he was skeptical of and so he took the uh blindfold off and was confronted by these burn victims. And before he can say classically in this movie's sort of subversion of interiority, um, before he can say how that affected him, they're interrupted. But then all of a sudden, as if plucked from his own internal uh, anxieties, all of a sudden we get these intimations that, uh, um, that Marcy herself, the object of his desire might be burned underneath her robe or underneath her, her clothing. She might be a burn victim, right? Like she has this ointment she has to apply. Um, and, uh, Kiki brings it up sort of, uh, coquettishly the first time they meet one another about how like, Oh, she knows some people who are burned head to toe so bad. And you would never even know. And then he finds a book about, um, rehabilitation of burn victims in, uh, Marcy's, um, room. And rather than responding to this with any sort of, um, empathy or human interest, he sees it as this, not only, uh, fear that he has to escape from, but he also sees it as like this, like trap that he is, he is being entrapped into being confronted by this. Right burned person and that is what sort of sets off his need to escape from her um which it which is obviously the the central operative metaphor for the whole movie right is that like he's afraid of the burns and he, he doesn't want to see the burns and if that means that he doesn't have to take off the clothes that's a-okay with him <laughs> to the point where he'll be encased in his job like a carapace to get away from it yeah literally the like he not only in that moment, he not only decides to like, um, he not only makes it up his mind to leave, he sticks around long enough to just insult her and kind of make her feel bad and like tell her the she's got skunk weed, you know, just like, again, a, a big character moment out of a s- small ish thing that really yeah. like then, of course, kickstarts the plot. I, I watched this in two parts, actually. Well, I, I restarted it because I started to nod the first time, but I stopped the first time. At around the 28 to 30 minute mark, and Aaron was watching it later, uh, and I was like, oh, I I didn't make it this far. And he's like, 
you should watch a couple more minutes than you already did because that's like where the real plot starts to kick in is, you know, we can't get back home. Uh, Marcy has killed herself and he doesn't want to be pinned with that, that kind of thing. He, he doesn't want any part of it. Um, I read a little bit about uh, Blackwell Dark Room uh, made or, or uh, posted a piece by Mark Sierra, a writer I'm not familiar with, but I think this is a fair piece uh, called After Hours, A Passive Journey Home. And it's got some really good conversations about um, sort of the tools that this movie uses to uh, conceptualize and, and tell its story. Uh, one of the most intriguing things that uh, that Mark says uh, is about the relationship or the film's relationship to time and and sort of like, though it is set in a single night, it really does extend the amount of time represented, so to speak. I'll just read a quick passage um, that I thought rang pretty strongly to me after after having seen it and not really picked up on this. Um, by building an almost hyper-real setting, uh, Scorsese demonstrates that he is fully aware of the story's restrictive dusk-to-dawn form and therefore elast elast elasticizes the nature of time and its perception by using a single Soho city block to explore the transmutation of a city through different eras. And in that respect, uh, he talks about the uh, different aesthetics represented in, um, of course, in Kiki's apartment, there's, you know, that uh, sort of modern 80s contemporary feel um, in the 24 hour diner, very much sound like a 50s diner. Uh, and then in uh, with, I forget the character's name, but with the server um, at, at, uh, at John. Miss Beehive 1965. Miss Beehive 1965. Yeah. Her apartment is very sixties decked out. Uh, and then of course the same piece points out the club Berlin, the venue where he almost gets a, a forced mullet or not mullet, <laughs> a forced uh, uh, mohawk. mohawk. Yeah. It's very much um, sort of the seventies New York punk scene. Uh, and I, I didn't really pick up on those things because they go by so quickly and they don't really let you languish in these areas and spaces. But does that, did anybody else notice that? Or am I, I love that. I love, I love the idea that, that this, this movie is about confrontations with the scariest, most paranoid aspects of generations of counterculture all coming home to roost. I mean, it's funny because like, like the log line of this movie could be like, like every nightmare you heard about Soho is true. You know, it's, so, it's like the the uh, the anarchist hippies down in Soho really are out to get you, right? Like that's how this movie feels. It feels like the most like conservative yuppies version of uh, a nightmare. It very much feels, yeah, at times a little uh, a little like exploitation film y. I mean, that part of that comes from the uh, compressed production time. Part of that comes from the very compressed editing and runtime. Um, I, I like how like scrappy it feels, you know, a lot of writing talks about how this movie is very like lush with eighties, New York lighting and, you know, uh, sort of classically, uh, rain wet streets and, uh, you know, very like unbuttoned hairy chest eighties stereotypes and whatnot. Uh, but ultimately it comes, it's very like, it's a very taut, very sort of, uh, funny minimalist version of, of a, what could probably be a much bigger story in my mind. Yeah. I, how how good is it, by the way, that one of the first things that Kiki does when she meets Paul is she gets some plaster on his uh, white collar, literally white collar shirt, uh, takes it off for him and gives him one of horse shirts, which is this black, like barely buttonable shirt that exposes most of his chest. It's just like a really great visual. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> well, and he ch he immediately changes his character, right? Like that's right. when he starts to try and turn into Mr. Smooth and to start seducing yeah. 
and um, not and just that, the woman that he he came to see, but also Kiki, right? Like, yeah. he, well, he, and that's that's when it's going to be make right? it doesn't work. Yeah, he's he's bit by bit losing, and we keep talking about interiority and identity. He's bit by bit losing that until like it peaks when somebody wants to take a literal physical part of his anatomy by taking his hair. Uh, I I I guess like classic. We thought there wasn't much to say here, but there is. Um, we're reaching the fifty minute marker. Yeah, have we? Have we it's also. Sorry, uh, you, we should also just point out real quick that like we should make explicit what we've already been talking about, which is that castration motifs recur throughout this movie, um, and like are <laughs> like oftentimes very funny in the classic after hours sense. Like I think maybe the most famous shot in this movie is that uh, at one point Paul goes to the terminal to wash his face at the bar um, in the bar bathroom, and there's just graffiti of a dude with a crocodile biting his dick off in the like in the bathroom stall uh or next to the smear and he just like looks at it and sort of like goes like an ooh boomy and like that's such a perfect like piss take of the movie on the movie is that like paul's just really afraid that these women want to castrate him right like like symbolically and literally (laughs) and i love how explicitly like how textual that is it's not even like subtext at that point I, i mean the castration is i think kind of a larger point i mean he the 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 reason that he starts to uh you know kind of push back against the idea of sleeping with marcy is when she becomes someone who is outside of his own conception of who she is right like when she actually becomes an actual person or at least not even becomes an actual person but hints towards the possibility of becoming someone who it turns out that she has a complicated life right yeah yeah or it turns out she really even does like his the, the the main fear that he has about her physical appearance is the idea that she might have uh, like burn scars. And it turns out that she almost certainly doesn't. Uh, the, the thing that he sees earlier in the film is a, a tattoo and that it's very likely she just had that book for some other reason. Right. Um, I think it's it, it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's strongly hinted that the lotion that she has is because she has this new tattoo. Am I wrong about that? Yep. Nope. I think that's exactly right. And so, you know, the the it's funny that someone who wants to get laid and who travels outside of his home when he has work the next day at six, seven, eight, nine in the morning um, is so afraid of the idea of actually sleeping with a woman when it's actually on their own terms. After he rejects Marcy and she uh, ends her own life, um, there's two, three women throughout the film who kind of throw themselves at him or if not throw themselves conspicuously right makes it very easy yeah makes it very very obvious that he could spend the night with them and that would solve all of his problems but that is something that is unfamiliar to him that is uh, uh kind of like not offensive to him but is something that that he won't that it won't solve his problems right um and i think that yeah. if you're Comparing this to other films in which kind of the ultimate goal is a return home. I mean, stories of that nature, I think they all kind of harken back to the Odyssey at a certain point. Right. But if you're talking about like uh, the Warriors or Inside Lewin Davis, um, I think it's important to recognize what the thing that they want to return to is. And in this case, what he wants to return to is what he's familiar with, what he's comfortable with. Right. He wants to return to his nine to five job, his safe apartment uh, in New York City. And his his own way of living in which he is in control, and a he world has, he understands, and that means controlling not only himself but also the people the people around, around him, specifically the women around him. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, like when I say castration, uh, castration is never just castration in movies, right? Yes. Yeah, so there's one step beyond. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry, Cody. Go ahead.
Uh, no, you're good. Um, I guess this isn't like terrifically relevant. Um, but I guess just to talk about Marcy a little bit more, uh, and like the, the term has come up already. Um, but, uh, like I imagine a more modern rendition of this type of story, and I'm sure it exists uh, in many different forms. But like I, I imagine that Marcy character being a more like actively like a more present facilitator of growth for Paul, like visa vis a vis manic pixie dream girl type role uh, throughout more than just like the first act, which like still wouldn't be great, obviously. Um, I've feel like I would almost prefer something like that than what what happens to her here um the again we'll put up a, a content warning um but like I don't the the fact that and, and like I I get the I think I get you know what that what that beat is fulfilling it just feels you know she's a behavioral and like lifestyle type of foil to Paul and it I got, I don't know, to me, it just felt a little harsh, a little mean um, to, you know, have, like, have her character go, you know, go that way in that, you know, have her arc. Just fucking, take her out of the movie, like, that, and I I guess that's my big, like, that lowers my ceiling for this movie, um, like, in terms of enjoyment, just because, like, I, I don't sense that in other parts of the movie, that, that type of that type of hatred, you know, um, like again, Paul is pointedly dismissive of, uh, like of, of everybody he meets. Um, and that includes all the, all the women he meets over the course of this evening. Um, but I, I guess to, if there is any like saving grace from that, that beat, um, in retrospect, I do really like, uh, like John Hurd's character, uh, the bartender, um, when it, you know, the turn happens that he has been seeing her and he like, you know, he's the man on the other, uh, and end of the telephone and, uh, you know, they're connected in that way. And we see his like very, uh, very different, very genuine, you know, how a person should react to death. Um, that was a nice, like that, that was something I, I was thinking about later in like subsequent scenes when I was, you know, reflecting on how, Paul does not give a shit uh, about anyone. Seeing somebody actually emote in this world um, was nice. Uh, whether or not you know that uh, that event was the best way to capture that, um, you know, I, I was going to say it remains to be seen, but uh, it doesn't. Like there are definitely better ways to construct that. I think. Yeah, a lot there. Uh, first of all, an interesting point about John Hurt's character. That was the one thing that I, the one seed that I wish had paid off a little bit better in the script is that it feels like it would have been really easy for his betrayal of Paul at the end of the movie to have been motivated by the fact that he somehow found out that Paul was responsible for Marcy's death in part. I don't think that happens. I think instead he just betrays Paul to the mob for no clear reason right? Except just to betray him, which I thought was kind of weird. Um, I guess that was just a way to resolve that character quickly at the end. Of, I think it, I don't know. I think it kind of makes sense. Like, I think we're, we're mostly viewing the events through, um, through Paul's POV, but I think, you know, specifically the scene in the diner and then the scene 
I believe a little bit before that, where he's retelling the events of the night to a, a, a man who, who thinks that he's trying to hook up with him and then kind of realizes like, oh, no, this is just a really wacko guy. I think that the story that Paul is telling becomes increasingly over the top to the point where it kind of makes sense that the bartender would turn on him like any rational person would go like, oh, there is like 100 people out there that that is saying this guy is like stealing shit from them. He has been very dodgy in and out the entire night, and it kind of makes sense. That, I oh, guess I don't know, and I just it like it felt unsatisfactory to me compared to everything else. Um, and then the other thing, Cody, like I think I got a sense from you, and we can talk about this a little bit more. Although we're coming up on time, sorry, Jason, um, that you didn't love this movie, maybe because of that. And I think I don't disagree with that, um, particularly the way that like the tone of this movie is so madcap and so sort of sympathetic with Paul as a put upon person that I, I think it threatens to, if not overlook, then minimize how shitty Paul's reaction to everything is. Um, we'll have another content warning here for sexual assault, but like Marcy also relays a very terrifying rape story to him uh, like early on in their relationship. Right. And this is before the burning and before the suicide, certainly. And Paul's reaction to that is also, again, if not contempt, then dismissal and a little bit of resentment that this is being foisted on him. Like, this is, this is a guy who is very profoundly of the opinion that none of this is his responsibility, none of it is his job, and he wants to get his and get back to what he's doing, get back to his job, right? He is not interested in helping anybody else or considering anybody else's interiority. And that is a terrible transgression, especially as we see in this movie. The movie doesn't ever really make explicit just how dire a transgression that is, except sort of in the consequences that unfurl around him, which is like probably maybe why Scorsese wanted Paul to die at the end. And like maybe, who knows, maybe that would have been the more uh, morally just scenario. Uh, but all that is to say that, yes, like that, it is, it is uncomfortable. This movie's relationship with Marcy because of her utilization in the larger films plot. Um, I think I kind of, it kind of works for me, uh, in that this movie is not necessarily sympathetic to Paul in the way that it might seem on first blush. But, uh, that being said, like, it's just like, even for a movie like this, the idea that this is a rape victim who later commits suicide is like a really rough thing that feels like maybe a tonal departure in a way that is uh, sad, you know? Yeah, I, I can see that. I think, uh, you know, I, we haven't brought it up, but I, I mainly view this movie as like a very dark comedy. Um, like in comedy, even more of the dark than it is the comedy i guess like i think this is a, like, <laughs> yes you know what i mean like there are elements it's of humor in this movie. one uh jason and i were talking about this and we we compared it and i think the the this is in general this would be a bad comparison to make but i think specifically this movie feels very much like martin scorsese's coen brothers movie this movie kind of yeah. moves often like a coen brothers movie and it has a lot of the kind of uh circumstantial hijinks that often come in their films. Um, it is, I think, darker than a lot of their films as well, uh, or at least a lot of their more comedic films. Um, but like this, this is a movie that is like 
deeply ironic and very, very dark. And I, I think I think there's something to be said for some of the tonal issues uh, as well. I think you're not necessarily wrong there. Um, that especially that that sequence in the kind of the first third of the movie comes off as like very, very dark. Uh, right. Compared to at least what came before it and even most of the stuff that comes afterward, I think. Well, the the darkness to me, I'm not going to apologize for it. It's obviously like the character is he's a hideous character. It falls in line with the character is the thing like we're I don't I don't really like I mentioned earlier so much by the idea that we are a that like he's a cipher for the audience or that we're meant to like fully empathize with him. So I think the fact that he does treat such things as that so callously is within character. It's just like a really hard character to see on screen and see him not punished. Like you were saying here, probably he should have died <laughs> in this movie. He should have like succumbed to like uh, to the forces that he was resisting throughout the entire movie. Ultimately. Right. right. Well, like, like what I'm saying is that, that the fact that the movie, then it, it exposes the depths of his callousness through this. Oh, okay. Um, and, but it, it doesn't feel like a, categorical shift occurs you know if that makes sense like like it doesn't feel like the movie is is signposting clearly enough that the fact that paul is reacting this way to this suicide is like a a terribly egregious transgression which it is it doesn't really feel like the movie's saying that i'm not saying that the movie has to say that though right like we're we're big boys like we can we can like sort of parse that but it it is interesting right the closer it gets to sorry aaron but i think i think what you're scratching at there here is that like the closer it gets to portraying the thing it's satirizing the more likely it is to be mistaken for that thing right um well i mean i i think that this movie part of the reason that that scenes like that come off maybe once you finish the film is kind of unsatisfying is i think this movie is very purposely unsatisfying and that it is not uh the, the punishment the character is is the ending of this movie is a mixture between deliverance and punishment right like he is he returns to familiarity, but you get, yeah, but you get the idea that the end of the film is also a punishment that he ends up back at the same kind of dead end shitty job and even worse condition uh, than he was at the start of the film, right? Like much like the, the clock on the, the, you know, the poster for this film, this movie is a, a cycle that he is going through, right? Not that he's going to do the exact same thing the next night, um, but he ends up kind of in exactly the same spot he did at the beginning. Um, and that's like a deeply ironic turn. And I think that he is not really punished for any of the shit that he did. Instead, he ends up in exactly the same spot. And so a lot of that, a lot of those darker moments feel kind of bad because it's like, oh, this character didn't actually have an arc in this movie. Like he does not grow as a person, I don't think. Um, instead he is the same as he was at the beginning. Am I wrong? Is there, is there some sort of shift in the character that happens that I didn't pick up on? There, there's a shift in the audience, right? But not in the character, which is pointed and, uh, and good in my opinion. Like, I think it's probably better that Paul doesn't die because the lack of satisfaction that we would receive from his death is better left unfulfilled, right? Like, I think that, that in the sort of punishment suits the crime uh, sense that you alluded to, Aaron, the idea that that this guy is going to get exactly what he wants, this sort of like frictionless dream life where he never has to engage with anyone's interiority and derives no sort of like actual meaning from the things that he is doing because of how afraid he is 
of the implications of that meaning when they are foist on him is like kind of a fate worse than death. Like that's the, that's the sort of very cynical Kafka esque reading of this that maybe the movie doesn't fully make, but it's sort of a a one possible takeaway. Yeah, I agree. Sisyphus, I guess he is comparable to Sisyphus. When you put it that way, it even is more of a Coen brothers film. Um, Yeah. I think we're nearing that portion uh, unless do we have any regular non noty thoughts left to squeeze out of this bag? I will say that I think the the title reference in this film is one of the great ones uh, where a character. Oh, it's uh, so good. A character. Basically, it's a, they're at a diner. Uh, he's at a diner with a woman. And uh, I believe he's at a diner with Marcy. And the the person behind the counter says, ah, no need to pay for your bill. Yeah, uh, different rules apply when it gets late. It's like, you know, after hours. Uh, it's like uh, the after hours, you know? Yeah. It's, what are we, some <laughs> kind of after hours? It's that, basically. Uh, I, it, I it's want like to... exactly as subtle as the uh, the crocodile biting the man's dick in like the the best, most movie-appropriate way, right? Where it's just like, listen, like you don't get to make that interpretation because we're going to lay it out in front of you before you can. Yeah. I, I will say that I do think that specifically like the different rules apply when it gets this late like that i've never had i've never had a night quite as crazy as the shit that happens in this but like just some wacko shit gets down if you like if you stay up late enough it's like just weird shit starts happening you know what i mean and i think this movie is uh a very good movie at expressing like the kind of frantic feeling of like staying out too late and just like being overly tired and just like just need just you just need to go to sleep you know what i mean but you can't for some reason would you get a mohawk to get into a club you were really trying to get into no i mean the the mohawk is the reason that's so bad is because he works that job right no i'm I'm not i'm not i'm not i'm not not asking the point of like movie discussion i'm asking like point blank you go downtown after covid and a bouncer won't let you in until unless you get a, 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 a mohawk do you do it uh Harry, you have your hand. Harry, what's your answer? I'm curious. Oh, I was gonna, I was gonna say something else, but uh, that's a weird question for What's me because mohawk? I wouldn't be particularly put off by having a mohawk, but I also have no interest in ever going into a nightclub ever. So neither of those <laughs> things are that appealing to me. I would like maybe just get a mohawk to like have a mohawk, but I wouldn't do it to go into. That's a nightclub. that's the truly punk thing because you're not going to get it to fit in. You're not going to get it to join a group. You're going to get it because you want it. I'm going to get it because my soulless uh, wage slave job uh, wouldn't care because I I enjoy a level of privilege not even afforded to Paul Hackett. Um, Getting a mohawk to go into a nightclub goes against the entire spirit of the hawk. You are getting a mohawk in order to conform. That's that's fake, dude. That's that's not why you get the mohawk. What what are we without our communities, though, Aaron? Who are we? I guess that's not us. Cody, would you get a would you get a mohawk? Uh, yeah, fuck it. Why not? Hell yeah. That's exactly the answer. Uh, then I think it sounds like we've squeezed the bag unless Aaron or Harry, you, you, you said before I brought Uh, up the Mohawk thing. Yeah. Just one, one last thing, which is just that like, uh, to speak to what Aaron said a little bit, like this is a really great movie for that feeling of when you're out at night really late and you start to see things that you wouldn't see any other time. And it makes you reconsider the, with the way this whole thing works. Right. I think we've talked about this a little bit before, maybe in the warriors, but like, that's one of my favorite things about being up all night or something is that like when you're up that late and you see 
uh, the people, workers or otherwise, who are also out that late, and you start to think about how all of this stuff is happening every night, you're just not there for it most of the time. It makes you, it like reframes your relationship with reality, like with your community, your city, what have you. And like this movie is a really great extrapolation of that feeling of like, this is happening in Soho all the time, right? Like all of this, this richness and weirdness and bizarreness of life was always happening all around Paul. And in fact, he finds out that not only is it not something he wants, it's something that he's terrified of. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to get mocked for this for uh, reasons that nobody listens. Let to it go. Understand. But, uh, uh, I'm going to reference my time abroad. Yeah, here, yeah, here we go. Uh, it's the Warriors up as well. There is nothing the war. It's the exact same point. There is nothing more humbling than be like living or just like being or traveling in a foreign country and understanding that like you just you ain't shit. Like I, I knew when I was in Turkey, there were people who would literally on like a Tuesday just go clubbing until literally until the it was like six in the morning and then they'd go to work like just drunk and like having slept like an hour and a half they would go to work at like nine and it's just like i do not know a single person in the united states that has ever done that once in their entire like maybe maybe once or twice for like special circumstances but like just on another fucking level and it's like uh, there's that's just a culture of like drinking and like staying up at odd hours that like i will never be able to fuck with uh, it's because professionals. It, it's because of our protestant work culture that that's right just exactly dominates right. everything fuck this place uh cool uh are you ready harry to to lead us in to to our final segment am i leading us in what's what segment is that and you're singing well it's, it's more of a duet yeah oh uh yeah we can lead us lead it in together when right. we go to cody's noties yikes uh three quick ones here um first uh we were so tantalizingly close to uh saving the the go out line um i'm glad we brought it up and i always have backups you know the different rules apply yada 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 um but uh yeah i thought we would have made it we didn't and that is totally okay i would not trade my experience here with you all for anything in the world um so there's that. I know, Cody. Second, you sound pretty fucking pissed about this. I'm fine. We'll talk about it once the recording is done. Um, secondly, uh, the presence of the uh, Tropic of Cancer by Henry Miller, just the presence of it in the movie, uh, my brain automatically defaulted to Seinfeld because that's who I am. And I guess thinking about it now, there are, uh, I feel like, some general uh, similarities between the two works just with like the overall consistent vibe in Seinfeld of the world is happening to me and I am not accountable for anything that happens like to me or my immediate surroundings uh, whether or not that assertion ends up being true or not um, like it's definitely there uh, within the the core uh, like set of four characters on that show so I it'd be interesting. I'd be interested to, to see, I don't know, just like how much attention was paid to this, uh, this little quirky uh, Scorsese joint. Um, but that, that was, I don't know. That was just a nice little something. It is, and then you're right. It yeah, is, it oh. is just a couple laugh tracks away from being like a long episode of Seinfeld. You're right. Oh yeah. Uh, and then uh, lastly, the really, really quick one. I was very, very, uh, I felt very blessed to see both of Kevin McAllister's parents, 
uh, in this movie, presumably pre, oh you know, big house of 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 children yeah. and nieces and nephews and things like that. So that was uh, a nice little reunion. Wow, I didn't notice the. F- yeah, I did. I guess that is his dad. I definitely. I just. Yeah. I, I never think that that's his dad. I I always forget uh, that. That's amazing. Yeah, but Catherine O'Hara is very good in this. Yeah, she's great. Yes. Yes. I was going to heap praise on John Hurd because I recognized him from uh, Between the Lines, but I'm yeah. not sure about his personal life, so I'd rather not heap praise. Uh, he, he is dead now, though. So, As an actor, I like him a lot. I Every time I see John Hurd in a movie, I'm like, oh, cool. Your, your heart just swells a little bit. Yeah. Um, cool. I think we're ready to make our way, mosey our way back out of this episode. Anybody, uh, I think it's been anybody, a really good one. Anybody, anybody notice the unibrow on Paul? That yeah, man it's has gotta a, do something about it, man. Dude. Very clearly, yeah. just a dis- just disgusting. Doesn't, doesn't you know one mean? of the doesn't one of the women that he meets start painting him, and she like captures <laughs> captures it perfectly? She gets like a complete unibrow going on it. I love that. Yeah, I think I think if I had to guess, that monobrow uh, was a, a central metaphor for the bridge between uh, Paul's. Life of tedium and this uh, this world that he's uh, acting as a tourist in for for the night. You know he's crossing that that hairy bridge, hairy bridge. Hey, bridge to Harabithia. I love that line uh, when he says, "I'm just a word processor for Christ's sakes." Deeply relatable, uh, and also. <laughs> And also, like, like not at all doing what he thinks is doing, right? Like, that's sort of kind of a, a thematic through line is that he thinks that he's somehow beneath having to care about all of this and or above it. Uh, it's funny. This is a good movie. It is. There's, yeah, like, there's, there's something else to be said, which I don't think that we're super qualified to do, but about the um, grappling with technology uh, at this time and sort of the place that he has in society and, and how we'd be considered today in that in that same position uh but maybe that's for uh our, our revisit um in 90 episodes of after hours uh but thank you very much for listening to this episode of try love you can find us on twitter at try love podcast you can find the trial on cinema at trial on cinema they are currently selling tickets for limited showings uh of, or rather limited seatings uh at more showings than normal um this film will be playing sometime soon i can yeah. insert the this weekend dates. after this is uh, this coming weekend so the 27th or so uh, buy a ticket to it. It, it, it. It'll be a lot of fun. Um, not comfortable going to the trilon? Well, uh, you can buy a ticket and then watch it at home. Uh, but in the meantime, my name is Jason Daphnis. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Cha, cha, cha. I'm Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Thank you for the reminder, Cody. I'm Harry. You can find me at Chitakiri. And I'm Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. Marcy's dead. Neil and Pepe are crooks. I'm broke. Help!